this afternoon is from Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 19 through 25 of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. I'll be reading to verse 39, the end of the chapter. Hear God's own true and eternal word. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy and under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite Unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. 
Amen. May God bless the reading and the further preaching. What is the church? This is in many ways such a simple question. And yet the identity of the church is what we could really say is a great confusion today. Um, you, you, you can ask Christians and people who belong to churches and very often they will say things that might be connected to what the church is but not really the center, not really the most important things or they leave out uh, the, the true identity of the church and, and much of the sad state of the church today is because the church has lost its way. It has forgotten what it is. So it doesn't know what it should be doing. You would agree that once it knows its identity, it will also know its activity. The identity will inform the activity. Um, But the church in many ways is aimless. It is lost in its objective because it lost its sense of what it is. Some think the church is merely a community. There are those who think it's a community of charity, that that's its primary purpose, to do good in this world. A community of fellowship. It's where you go to have friends. It's where you go to be encouraged. It's where you go to, to, to prod one another in this difficult life A place to be entertained. Many people see the church a lot like a theater. Um, The pastor in many ways is simply one of the characters. There might be many others as part of the drama that people are watching. Um, the, the, The whole mindset of the world where there is such a centrality and entertainment, where a lot of people just sit looking at other people performing, that's what's happening in many churches. People are performing and people are watching. They're being entertained. What is the church? Is it a building? Is it a club? Is it a school? Well, in, in, with the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, a very simple definition of the church in, in Article 25, Paragraph 1 says, It is the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. Did you notice in this simple definition something transcendent, something that goes beyond simple humanity because it said that the church is a number of those who have been, so even those who are dead today are part of the church, those who are or who shall be gathered together. As God looks upon the world, He sees it without time frame and He considers those in heaven and those on earth and those who shall still be saved who haven't even perhaps been born, but they in the eyes of God are part of the church. So that already means and shows that the church is not a place for entertainment. It is, it is not a place for charity primarily. It, it is not a pray, place for, for fellowship. The, the church, in a, in a simple definition, is a gathering of God's people. Uh, th- that's a good definition because the word church comes from ecclesia, 
That's a Greek word that's been often understood and, and heard. That's where, where many of the languages, the, the Portuguese and Spanish, they will use the word ecclesia and, and, and just transform that into the ch- word church in their own language. Um, it sounds a lot like ecclesia in, in some of those languages. And the word ecclesia means assembly, an assembly of people. So, so right there we understand this very building, even though we call it a church, and people may pass the road and say, there's a church, we need to fight against the reality that, that this building, the brick and mortars, are a church. This is a building. The church are the people. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that assembles here in this building um, is, is always existing, even though we don't have times of worship. And you are part of the church if you are a professing believer. It's an assembly of people. Well, in, in a survey that was taken asking, what is the church for? One, one clergyman wrote this. He said, the church, I believe, must be the place where we gather to be healed, loved, and strengthened, but also challenged and trained to impact the world. The church is the boot camp for soldiers who have signed up to be agents of change. Sunday morning is the huddle where we come together, and when we leave, we must be like Mary of Bethany and change the atmosphere wherever we are, Church is the gathering of those who have chosen to be conscious of society and lobby for the poor, disenfranchised and abandoned. Many of the things that this has said does refer to what the church should do. But there's not a word for worship. In none of these phrases it says that the main reason we gather is to worship the God who gathered us. He gathered us to worship Him. But some people will speak of what the church is without even mentioning that really most important activity of the church. In that same article, there was one, um, Mike Winowski, I I do give his name because I'm not wanting to malign anyone, and this pastor did say what I believe the right thing. He, he pointed in many ways to the articles of faith that usually have had many minds of theologians and godly men to think these truths. And this Mike Winowski says, the shorter catechism so beautifully describes what a human being is for. So he even goes to the very human to begin with, one individual, and says to glorify God and enjoy God forever. I would say that also describes what the church is for. As the bride of Christ, the church uniquely honors and enjoys God. But as the body of Christ, the church also uniquely serves God. And he had two other paragraphs describing that whole reality. So he went right to the very center of, of what the church is supposed to be. It should be an entity here on earth and in heaven that glorifies God. You know, you will be living right as a church if you're trying to do here on earth what the church is doing there in heaven. And there in heaven, it honors and praises God and obeys God in everything. Don't we pray, Lord, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It does work perfectly in heaven 
And we are praying that it would work perfectly here on earth. And the church is the one body that can do that by the grace of God. Not, not, not meaning we'll be perfect, but we have that direction. We have this desire. And so let us think in our first point about the identity of the church. We, we will hope to go through a list of, of many things that God's word brings giving the identity of the church. And, and beloved, see of it this way. You're learning who you are. If you're a professed believer, this is who you are. And it will inform what you're supposed to do. That will be our second point, the activity of the church. We, we won't exhaust that one today. There, there are more items we hope to see in the future. But then we'll see in our third point, the blessing of the church. Because of what it is, because of what it's called to do, it will have many blessings. And again, we, we won't be able to exhaust all of them, but we will see the main ones, especially from, from Hebrews 10. But we'll, we'll go beyond um, Hebrews 10. Our first point then, the identity of the church. The church, this assembly that we saw the church means, it's assembly of people. What kind of people? If we could give a name to this people, what name would we give to it? And when, when we read um, in Hebrews 10, this is why I chose this passage, um, without using the name church, it does give its very definition. In verse 25, it says, For us as a church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It basically, he's saying, Church, don't stop being a church. Because the word assembling together is connected to the definition of what the church is. It is, it is an assembly of people. It's not necessarily meaning that the church is only a church when it is together. We are part of the church, even individually in our homes. But Paul is here, or the author of Hebrews is here saying that the church should not forsake coming together, assembling together. We cannot forsake this. We cannot leave this behind. But we'll look at this in our second point. But I'm, I'm just explaining why I brought this passage. We are people who are to be assembled together. But the very last verse of this chapter, it says in verse 39, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe. That's our first point regarding the identity of the church. The church, this assembly of people, is comprised of Believers, It's just that simple. Them that believe. We saw this morning how important it is to believe and to repent. This is what brings you into the body of Christ. It is when you believe and repent. You are baptized because you believe that Christ is the one that you are to trust, that you are to submit unto. And, and the word believe brings, of course, Everything that we often bring in terms of the sermons, we are to believe God, that He's the Creator, Christ, that He came as Savior and Lord, that He died for sinners. Um, believe, really, the, the, the belief and faith identifies who a Christian is in this spiritual way. It shows immediately that a, a Christian is not part of, of an institution that is human. It is an extra-human institution. It is a mystical institution, we could say. It's a spiritual body because you are part of the body of Christ through faith. You believe in Jesus. 
You believe in God and His revelation. You believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because you believe in this in these doctrines of God's Word, you believe in, in the Bible, in the summary of what the Bible teaches, in, in the Christ that the, that the Bible declares to be the Messiah that is the only Savior. You, you don't keep that faith to yourself and you just secretly hold to it. You profess it. So you could say, secondly, that the identity of the believer, the identity of the church, is they are believers, but they are believers who profess their belief, their faith. And notice that Hebrews 10 deals exactly with this in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast. It's a beautiful expression. The profession of our faith. This is who Christians are. This is who those who are part of the church do. They hold fast the profession of their faith. Um, the holding fast is, is exactly this idea. It, it is, there's the physical way of thinking of holding, where you're grabbing onto something, almost in the sense of possessing. So let's say you, are, um, you parked your car and you hold on to that key. You, you don't just throw it away. It's, it would be unthought. Uh, you wouldn't, it would be something you would not even think of doing. You want to go back to that car and drive that car, so you hold fast to that set of keys. You put it in a secure place because you need it. We're not thinking, but we are declaring, this is my possession. This is my car. I need it. I cannot part with it. No one can steal it. I need to go back home, so I'll hold fast to these keys. And the word hold fast here is, is, would be the same as holding any kind of object, but it's, of course, used metaphorically in a spiritual way that we think of all these sets of doctrines and we are holding on to them spiritually. And what do we do? We confess it. Because that's what the word profess means. The very foundation of that word is simply agreeing. Maybe you've heard before that to confess is to agree. And so you have these doctrines and you read them and you say, I agree with them. I agree I'm a sinner. I agree I needed Christ to come and die for me. And I agreed that He resurrected from the grave. And I agree that He will come back. And, and, you, and you proclaim that agreement with others. That's the profession that you hold on to. That you will not let go. Because you need it really more so than that car. That car could be stolen. And you will be fine. But if your profession is stolen. If, if what you believe in. If you were to think that that belief could be taken by a thief. You wouldn't live. We, we can't survive. We're no longer Christians. We're no longer part of the church if we have no profession. So we hold on to it. As for life itself. So... These two identities so far, believers, the identity of the church is they are professors. And then thirdly, also looking here at Hebrews, exactly where we began in verse 19, it said, having therefore brethren, just that little word. He, he calls the people he's speaking to, not audience, not something very um, cold and, and just saying, my dear readers or my friends, or my beloved ones. He can address them in those ways at times, but he's calling them brethren. Brothers and sisters. 
The identity of the church is that of brethren. It is a term of family. So the church is not only made up of believers, not only made up of professors, it is made up of family. It is a term that immediately speaks of the reality that we're not an institution like the world sees it. Not everybody who goes to a school are family. Not everybody who congregates in a government building are family. Not everybody who is in the military are family. You may have a brother who's in the military, but they're not all your brothers and sisters. But in the church, we are all family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I, when I started going to church in my college years, that was one of the thing, things that, that was very interesting for me to see how, how those believers that go to church all the time relate to one another. And I would hear them very freely call each other brother if they were men and sisters if they were ladies. Or if you were referring to a lady and you could say, dear sister, could you do this? Um, hey, brother, could you do this? And it wasn't a slang just of endearment. It was, it was really familial. Because as you study the doctrine, it's because all of us have the same elder brother, the Lord Jesus. And there's even that doctrine of adoption, that we've been adopted unto God as our Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who seals this reality in us. This is not just wishful thinking that we're just being endearing with one another. We are brothers and sisters. Some of us, beloved, are closer in terms of blood relation than even a physical blood-related brother or sister because they might not know Christ, but you and someone else do. And through the blood of Christ, you are related. And that's a greater relation. There is a friend closer than a brother. And when Christ is your brother, you look to the side, beloved, and if you see one who professes Christ, that is your brother and your sister in Christ. That's the identity of the church. We are family. We are related by the brotherhood of believers. Fourthly, I could say also with, with the words of Scripture, now we will look at different passages, that believers, the identity of the church is that we are co-laborers. Or you could say co-workers. 1 Corinthians 3.9 For we are laborers together with God. He goes on to say what I could say is number five. We are God's husbandry. That's 1 Corinthians 3.9. Ye are God's husbandry. And then I also bring here the sixth one, that we are God's building. Let me speak of each one of these three. 1 Corinthians 3.9 has all those three. Co-laborers, God's husbandry, God's building. First of all, co-laborers. This expresses two things. That we are people that labor. That we are people who are working. We are servants. We, we, we are active. We're, we're not just here just to, to, to look at each other. We're not just here to, to just have a moment of fellowship. That, that's part of it, and we'll get to it. But we are workers. We are servants. Servants, they sweat. Servants produce. Servants have something to show for of what they do. And we are supposed to do this together. We are people that labor together. That's the second thing. Paul, Paul doesn't just say... Workers, He says, workers together. So our goal 
in working together for the kingdom is the same. And, and God's word fills us in. In what way? Um, we may work together where you may be the one who, who has the mind for giving. Someone else has the mind for using his hand in a very skillful way. Somebody else has the ability to take us there and, and, and take us in a car or, or take us in terms of the strategy that's going to be used. And so someone can plan and someone can invest and someone can sing and someone can talk and do the teaching and someone can do the caring and someone will be the leader to make sure all of this is done. And we're doing it together. So that even as Paul was in prison, he was still laboring and those outside were co-laboring with him. And if one of those labors were to be put into the prison with him, he would have not only a co-prisoner, but it was a co-laborer in prison. So that even if we have our hands in shackles, we're still working. And that's what Paul says in Philippians, where he tells the church not to be worried. Because even though he's in prison, the word has gotten up to Caesar's household, he said. So here's Paul. He never thought that he would be a preacher for Caesar's household. But it was by going to prison that that happened, where the gospel arrived there. We are co-laborers. And then God's husbandry. Of course, the word husbandry is the more familiar thought in our minds is that we are the flock and He is our shepherd. And husbandry is, is of course, a, a, a speech in terms of, of, of a flock and, and, and of a herd. And it implies also two things. It expresses God's care over us. He's the husbandman and we are the herd. We are the flock. He is the shepherd. And the shepherd cares, the shepherd protects, the shepherd guides, as well as the thought that we belong to him. And here we are as, as a sheep of his fold. Always understand this. We, we, another way of saying the very famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, would be to say this, I am his sheep. The moment you say, the Lord is my shepherd, you are identifying that you belong to Him. Um, my, my, my love for raising sheep was sparkled again as I had the opportunity to visit. And one of the first days in Brazil, I visited one of my, my friends from college. I've spoken of him together in my talks about sheep because he was raising sheep with me in the beginnings while I was in college and he's still uh, a man who raises sheep um, and he, he had a flock and they were at this very moment um, having lambs, they were lambing right now and everything he did in the, the two days I was with him part of one day and part of a second day was worry about those little lambs and that's why he was there in his little farm he had a house somewhere else but he couldn't be there he had to be there because the sheep were lambing and while we were far away looking at a fence he he looked in the distance and he saw buzzards up in the air roaming over his flock and he sent his son to go check on the sheep because often when the lamb is coming through because of what's going on it attracts the buzzards, and so he sent his son. His son got there. Yes, the buzzards, sure enough, were there waiting for the lamb to be born. And because the shepherd sent his son, the sheep were taken care of. The lamb were fine. And you're with husbandry, and you're with flock, and you just see the Bible truths coming to life. We are God's husbandry. God is saying with this, I 
will take care of you, and you belong to me. That's the identity of the church. We are co-laborers. We are God's husbandry. And that last phrase, you are God's building. It's not unfamiliar that many passages speak of the church as a building in the sense that, again, um, that we are growing, that we are being built, and the sense of togetherness. It's one building. There isn't one building here and one building there and another building here. The church is one big building. And, and the, the figure goes on further where the Lord Jesus is, of course, the chief cornerstones. The apostles and the prophets, we read in Scripture, are the foundation of this building. And we are all the blocks that are there. And this brings, of course, um, and, and I'll speak of, of what it brings with one more word. I'm, I'm wanting to bring the word unity here but I'll bring it in a little bit because there's one more word that is kind of alongside this idea of being co-laborers and co-workers. Seventh would be that we are fellow citizens. We are citizens of the same kingdom. Um, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Their household of God, the family theme and are built upon the foundation of the apostles. That's the building theme. But let me speak of the fellow citizens theme. That implies a kingdom. It implies a people. And this is the speech even in terms of of municipality and, and nationality. And it speaks of boundaries. It speaks of geography even. In politics. And we are we are all citizens of the same kingdom. We all have the same passport. And in it, it will say that we belong to the kingdom of King Jesus. This is an invisible passport, boys and girls. It it doesn't really exist. But every single Christian, whether you are in China or America, and all across the globe, every true believer is a fellow citizen. We're, We're not just family, brothers, and sisters, but we're also people who belong to the same kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we put all of these last words that we've been thinking, the phrases, brethren, co-laborers, husbandry, a building, fellow citizens, all of these have one thing in common. And so now we'll be number eight, that the church is one body. This is still speaking of our identity. We are one. We are one. We are a family of brothers and sisters, and yet we are one. This is not something we do. It is not something to be achieved. It's a reality to be believed. And yes, then to be obeyed. We, we do things in a united way. If we realize that we're discording, disagreeing with one another, and a schism is starting, we should think, no, this cannot be. You are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. And, and we must be united. We are in the eyes of God. We cannot dare separate and divide upon this earth. Or else we, we won't be living according to our identity. Look at Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. 
Romans 12, 4 through 5, 4, as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ. And many other passages that speak of this one body reality. And not only in the church, united here on earth, but as, as we saw from the catechism, we are one even with the church in heaven. See, death, those who have left before us, have not parted the unity we have with one another. Isn't this astonishing to think? Not even death can break the unity. This is what we read. Look, um, What believest thou concerning the holy Catholic Church, that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves himself by his Spirit and Word out of the whole human race, a chosen, a church chosen to everlasting life? And that means that those who are in everlasting life experiencing it, they are part of the church with us, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof, even after I die. And the very next question is where it brings that reality of where we're gathered from first. Well, the question, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes being members of Christ are in common partakers of Him and of all His riches and gifts. And secondly, that everyone must know it to be His duty readily and cheerfully to employ His gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Those who have gone before us have done their duty. They have done their service. And now they're living and experiencing the everlasting life reality. That's why they're called a church triumphant. We are the ones who are here on earth having to use the gifts that God has given, having to employ these gifts for the advantage and salvation of others. This is why we're called a church militant. What has happened is that for you to become church triumphant, you need to die. And as strong and as powerful as death is, it does not divide the church. We we are in different places, in different realms, but we are still united. We are the church militant. The saints in heaven are the church triumphant. Look what one Dr. Manning wrote about this reality. He says, The unity of the church on earth with the church unseen is the closest bond of all. Hell has no power over it. Sin cannot blight it. Schism cannot rend it. Death itself can but knit it more strongly. Nothing is changed but the relation of sight. that We don't see them anymore. That changed but we're still united to them by Christ. Like as when the head of a far-stretching procession... So think of... Follow what I'm going to read. We might get lost in it, but think of this. A long-stretching procession Dr. Manning is proposing. A whole bunch of people walking. Boys and girls, this is like a long, long, long parade. So think of that. Winding through a broken hollow land hides itself in some bending veil. So think if you're way in the back, the procession went down, and you only see a few people. You don't see any more that mile of people that was ahead of you. But you're still part of that procession. 
In many ways, see, this is the figure. This is what death is. They're gone, but you're still part of the whole. All advancing together. They that are farthest on their way are conscious of their lengthened following. See, those who are oh, their head know that there's a big line behind. And they look back sometimes and they see it. But then when they're down in the valley, they, they, they only see a few and then they don't see the others. But they're conscious of that togetherness. They that, are, um, they that linger with the last are drawn forwards, as it were, by the attraction of the advancing multitude. So think of those who are way in the back. They are maybe the ones who are going slower. Maybe they're the ones who are younger. Maybe they're the ones who were just saved. So they can't be way, way in the front. But, but they see that line of people. And even if all they see are a few right in front of them, he'll keep going right ahead. And if death takes anyone, we're just more bound together because we will now pray and we will be grieving the loss of that loved one. And, and the sense of the reality that we have a loved one in heaven makes us yearn to go there and to be faithful here on earth and to be a good testimony here on earth. That death only drew us closer together. Unity. That's number eight. And then there's a few more, but I'll leave that for next time because I want to rush to our second point, the activity of the church. And again, I'll just bring a few of them here, beginning with our text itself in Hebrews. What is the church supposed to do? We saw some of the things that it is. Well, what are some of the things that it does? What is the activity of the church? I began with the church is comprised of believers. Well, I, I must start with that. If, if, if your identity is that you are a believer, that informs what you are to do. You are to believe. I start here because that's how you begin as a believer. You, I'm sure you'll agree with me. And verse 39 says, But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe. That, that only doesn't only show your identity. It shows, of course, your activity. You are one who believes. And, and this is very important because we're living in a day where people think that a, a matter of belonging to a church is signing a few papers and, and maybe, yes, a confession, but they think of it as a business. They think of it as, as like you join a club and, and, and something like a business and something that has to do with your money and giving your offerings. That is not what comprises the activity of a church. It is faith. It is belief. To start as a believer, you trust, and the righteous lives by faith. It's from faith to faith. We never graduate from faith. We look to Jesus on the cross, and we enter in through the straight gate, and we continue through the narrow road looking unto Jesus because He's the chief one of our profession. It is faith what the church does. Beloved, if you come to this building to worship God, but you stopped believing, you don't worship God. If somebody says, I began as a Christian, but I, I no longer believe these things, well, then you're not living as a Christian anymore. The church believes. That's what the church does. But then we... we um, we saw that, that this belief is not just kept to yourself. And we, we saw that 
he, Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. So secondly, the believer, the church, professes faith. The church holds fast to this profession. And it's unwavering in it. Look what he says. Without wavering. And why without wavering? For he is faithful that promised. We saw this morning about promises. God gives these promises. What do you do with them? You hold fast to them. You don't, you don't sit there doubting those promises. The moment you do this, you're not believing and you're not professing your faith. But you believe these promises and you hold fast to them. Even if they have not yet come true, like, like the coming of Christ. He promised He would come. He hasn't come yet. It's a promise that's not yet fulfilled. There have been times that the church has received mockery from the world. Even today, people would say, where's your Christ? He has not yet come. What do you do? You hold fast to that promise. He never promised and gave you the date that He would come. In fact, He told you it would be a day no one would be waiting for. He will come as a thief in the night, a time unsuspected. That's even part of the promise. And with God, a day is, is with a year. as A, a thousand years is, is like a day for the Lord. You have biblical principles to understand. He can take as long as He wishes. But I hold fast to this promise. And I proclaim it. We saw what hold is. It is, it is to, to grab and not let go. And to profess is to confess, to agree, to give a recognition. So number one, the church believes. Number two, the church professes. Number three, very simple. And, and it's sad that, that I even need to bring this because... Even from the days that Hebrews was written, it was a problem. And, and it continues to be a problem. In many churches, people give up or stop or cease or forsake assembly. And so number three, I'll, I'll say the church assembles. Not only is the church an assembly of people, but this assembly of people assembles together. And this is why the author of Hebrews said, not forsaking, verse 25, the assembling of ourselves together, notice, as the manner of some is. So this has been a sadness in the church of Christ from the very beginnings where, where perhaps professors start getting kind of tired or maybe in this case they were scared because these were days of persecution. Um, one thing that speaks of this persecution is verse 34. And notice here in verse 34 the extent to which the church lived with unity and with a heart of love for each other. In verse 34 it says, For ye had compassion on me in my bonds. So this is the idea that here's Paul in prison. If he's the author of Hebrews or whoever the author was, was in prison. He was in bonds. And look what he said. And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have heaven a better and an enduring substance. What, what does this mean? How, how can you connect that they had compassion of him and his bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods? Well, one commentator thinks of it this way, and it makes a lot of sense. Here was the author of Hebrews in prison. And for anyone to show compassion to him, they had to show up. They had to go take him food. They had to go visit him. And if he was there because of the gospel, any connections with him would have a suspicion that they were gospel believers as well. 
so that their lives would come into danger. And so the thought is that where it says that they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods is that some of the people who did associate with that person in prison now suffer the danger that their things would be confiscated, that they too could be put in prison, and their goods would be spoiled. And so this is what was happening. You understand now why Paul writes to Timothy that many people forsake, forsook him. They were scared to go visit Paul. Because if they visited Paul, they would be associated with Paul. And Paul was in prison because of Christ. And if they were associated so publicly with Christ, they could be put in prison too. And that was happening. Many of the preachers of the gospel or others who were put in prison were very rarely visited because people were scared to visit them. But not everyone. There were those who understood If I'm put in prison, I'll leave that up to God's sovereignty. This this apostle needs the love of Christ. And even if my goods are spoiled, I'll still love him and I'll go. That's what the church does because of what it is. We are united. And so we assemble. Even if the assembling of one another means to assemble in prison or the danger of prison. And I just want to end with this, this point. The church worships. I believe this is the most important point of the activity of the church. This group of people who believe and who profess our faith and who assemble together, the question would be, what for? For, for a meal? Is it primarily for encouraging one another? See, we, we will get to that because that is part of it and that is important because it happens. But the primary reason the church assembles is to worship God. Look at Acts 4, 2, 46. We read in Acts 2 this morning, if we kept reading, we would get to verse 46. It says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There are elements, of course, here of fellowship. It could be that this eating meal with gladness and singleness of heart wasn't just worship. It was also having meals from house to house. But this breaking bread from house to house, many agree that the ancient church was so excited about Christianity, about Christ, their resurrected Lord. The Spirit had come profusely. They wanted to meet every day and even have the Lord's Supper. As the church saw through time that there was a danger in doing it every day and people would start trivializing it, we do see in history that it became less and less, and not every day. But they were, with one accord, going to the temple. They were praising God. They were worshiping the Lord. That's what the church does. It's not the only thing it does, but it's really the primary thing it does in terms of importance. And I'll just just come to this point. 
um, in our in our second point, and I want to end in our third point: the blessing of the church. There are also many blessings. I just want to bring a few of them here. In verse thirty-nine, again, that we've been going to, that speaks of them that believe. It says to the saving of the soul. Beloved, savor this reality. Is there a blessing greater than salvation? Your soul that is eternal, your soul that was given to you that will never die to be saved because of faith in Jesus. You see, the believer, that the church's identity is, is that they are believers. That means that they believe. And what blessing is derived? Salvation. Eternal life. Salvation. And once you are saved, you grow spiritually. That's a second blessing. Listen to Ephesians 4.15. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ so that the church grows. It, it is that building that doesn't stay stagnant. It just keeps growing. And not just in numbers, but in holiness. Not just that more people come to the church, but you who belong to the church become more and more like Jesus, the head of the church. We grow spiritually. We are strengthened and edified. Look at Acts 9.31. Then had the churches rest through all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. This is part of how we grow. We, we grow because we're being strengthened, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. This is Acts 9.31. A fourth blessing, and I just have a couple more. This one and a last one. A fourth blessing... I'm thinking of, of all the majestic ones. Salvation, spiritual growth, spiritual edification, that you're strengthened. And fourthly, you will experience Christ's presence. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, think again of the assembly of believers, being gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. The why, why did I put salvation before the presence of Christ? Well, you will only experience the presence of Christ if you're saved. You know, that's one reason many people come to church and they're disheartened and they leave. They assemble. They come together. They are two or three. But they never feel Christ's presence. It's because they're not saved. They don't know Jesus. They haven't truly believed with saving faith that comes from Him. They haven't truly repented. They, they join the church more like the club in their mind, more like a place of entertainment. And, and frankly, we, we don't have the know-hows of entertaining like the world does. And we don't want to because that's not what we're supposed to do. But that's what they're looking for. So they go to a church that maybe can feed them in that way. And maybe they'll stay there for a little while, but, but before too long, they'll go look for someone else, somewhere else. But when you're saved and you gather it can be in a very lowly group of people. Few people. I say lowly meaning just a few people. It can be lowly even meaning humbly. 
and people who are very poor, people who don't have the means. We, we can't even turn on the lights. We don't, have, we don't have a big building, but we're two or three. Jesus says, I'll be there. I'll be with you. And lastly, the greatest blessing of all, Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. The great blessing of the church is when you are truly the church and you're doing what you ought to do by God's grace, the blessing is that you will be giving glory to God through Jesus Christ. And you know how there's that verse in God's Word that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our great big problem. Because of our sin, we cannot glorify God. But when you're part of the church through the grace of Christ, we as the church glorify God. And that's what blesses us the most. And this is even connected to what we saw that pastor who said, since a a person's main goal is to glorify God, the church's main goal is to glorify God and enjoy it forever. Are you part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you realize your identity? Do you bask in the activities that God has given? And have you been blessed in these ways? Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, Lord, we pray first for those who are not yet part of thy true and living church, perhaps part of the visible church, perhaps part of the covenant community. But Lord, they lack this true faith and true profession. We plead, Lord, with thee, who is the only one who can call inwardly, that Thou would do so. That Thou would cause, Lord, this soul to see how he needs the Lord Jesus to be his or her Savior today. We pray, Lord, that Thou would reconcile him to Thyself. That Thou would illuminate this heart to understand Christ and to trust Him with a saving faith. To have a heart pricked like those people on the day of Pentecost and to ask honestly, what must I do? And to obey the summons to repent. Lord, we can preach Thy Word, but only Thou, Lord, can do this inner work and we plead that Thou would do so. Thou art the one who also knows those who need it. And Lord, graft them into Christ that they may now be part of this very blessed group that believes, that professes, that are saved, that serve, who are united, and who 
love thee so greatly. Lord, we pray that thou would be with those who are already part of thy true and living church. They have been assembled by thee, and Lord, thou knowest each and every one by name. They are the ones who have heard the Good Shepherd and heard his voice and followed. They are the ones who eagerly say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord, we pray that thou would help us acknowledge the blessedness of being part of thy church. Help us to understand, Lord, that there is, there is no merit in any of us who are part of it. It's not that we were wiser. It is not that we were better. It is thy grace that has reached us, Lord. And now we want to give thanks forever and ever. And we do so by worshiping thee. Lord, we pray, bless thy church. Add to it both spiritually and in numbers. And we ask all in Jesus' name, the head of the church, amen.